Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, we go back in time to 1968. We meet a man whose life was changed forever the day his older brother left the house with a loaded pistol. Suspect now being held by Los Angeles police in connection with the Kennedy shooting is 24-year-old Sirhan Bishara Sirhan. And one woman's tribute to how the late 1960s inspired her mom's California dream. Plus, we hear about a factory that closed 50 years ago, leaving collectors scrambling to find its treasures. Doggy diner mugs. And we were so excited. We were quivering. We were so excited. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. If you'd tuned in to KQED Public Television 50 years ago, this is what you might have heard. The war in Vietnam, the problems of race and the cities, these are issues facing the citizens of the United States. And they are issues vividly facing the students on an urban campus. In 1968, it was all coming to a head. The assassination of MLK, anti-war protests, student uprisings. All of that was the backdrop for Senator Bobby Kennedy's campaign for president. He raised hopes that he could heal a divided nation. He rallied for the farm worker movement, pushed for civil rights and peace in Vietnam. He won the California Democratic presidential primary, and moments after giving a rousing victory speech in Los Angeles, he was gunned down. His death 50 years ago this week was a huge loss for so many Americans and a tragedy for the Kennedy family, who had already lost President John F. Kennedy five years before. But the events that unfolded that June night were also devastating to the family of convicted assassin Sirhan Sirhan. Sirhan continues to make headlines this week as Kennedy's son, Robert Jr., is calling for a reinvestigation into the assassination, questioning whether Sirhan was indeed the killer. Reporter Peter Gilstrap brings us a rare glimpse into the life of Sirhan's last surviving family member, someone whose fate is forever entangled with the Kennedys, and in some ways, whose life is still frozen 
1968. On a serene, leafy street in North Pasadena, a 70-year-old man has lived a quiet life in a well-preserved craftsman house since his family bought it in 1963. He keeps the lawn mowed, he chats with the neighbors, and sometimes he smokes Parliament cigarettes with his tea on the front porch. On a June day 50 years ago, one of his older brothers left this same house with a loaded 22 pistol. He got into his pink and white 56 DeSoto and drove to a gun range. Later that evening, he headed to the Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard. Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. So, uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you, Mayor. After TV news cameras captured his words, the senator left the stage and entered a small, crowded kitchen pantry. He never made it to Chicago. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. Get the gun. Get the gun. His hand is frozen. Get his thumb. Kennedy was down, taking two bullets in the back and one in the head. 26 hours later, he was dead. Here's a CBS News report. The suspect now being held by Los Angeles police in connection with the Kennedy shooting is 24-year-old Sirhan Bishara Sirhan. And he was just a fun-loving guy. He, he, he liked life, and he liked family. This is Muneer Sirhan, the brother of Kennedy's convicted assassin. If anybody was uh, trying to do me any harm, he'd go up there and you know, confront the people and tell them, listen, this is my little brother. I don't want anybody hurting him. Sirhan Sirhan was tried and sentenced to the gas chamber, a sentence that was commuted to life in 1972. Since then, he's been denied parole 15 times. For the last 50 years, Munir has waited for his brother to return to this house in Pasadena. And for the last 50 years, he's lived in the wake of his brother's actions. Munir leads a solitary life, never got married, never had a career, he worked odd jobs and was supported by his family, who always pooled their resources. He keeps the furniture in the house pretty much as it was the day Sirhan drove away. Of the family's parents and six children, Munir and his older brother are the only ones left. Unfortunately, uh, Sirhan and I, <laughs> Sirhan and I, it would be pretty rough without him, you know, even if it was just letter writing. The Suez crisis burst dramatically into the news again, for Israel has invaded Egypt. Background to these startling events is the running sore of the Israel-Egypt frontier. For many years, even the village schools in the frontier settlements have known that at any moment, death may be looking over their shoulder. That's a British newsreel from 1956. In the 50s, the Sirhans, who were Arab-Palestinian Christians, were living in Jerusalem, an area experiencing continued upheaval from the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Munir says this was the violent backdrop for his early childhood memories. A lot of hecticness, a lot of hecticness, a lot of uh, uh, air raid sirens going on every other day, just about. Uh, I remember uh, going to my best friend's home, and they're, they're telling me he's not coming to school today and wondering why, and then the next day you find out that he got blown away from a bomb. A ship overcrowded with seasick refugees brought the family to America in 1956, leaving the Holy Land for the paradise of Pasadena. But it wasn't perfect. You know, we got along. We made friends. We, it was okay, but you, you couldn't be an Arab here. 
You could, you could be an Arab at all. His devout mother Mary got a job in the nursery at Westminster Presbyterian Church, walking distance from the house. His father returned to the old country, unable to adapt to life in the States. Sirhan and Manir, the family's two youngest sons, started attending local public schools and got paper routes, throwing the Pasadena Star News. Sirhan was a reader at John Muir High School in Pasadena, the same school Jackie Robinson attended. He joined the ROTC and learned to shoot a 22 rifle. Manir had bad eyesight and quit school after sixth grade. He watched a lot of TV, Felix the Cat, The Three Stooges, and Yogi Bear. He was becoming an American. He bought records, he loved music, and most of all, he loved Stan Freeberg. Freeberg was the weird Al Yankovic of the 1950s, and Manir especially loved his parody of the Banana Boat song. It's too loud, man. That's better. He's a day, 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 oh. Daylight come and me wang oh, oh. I think that's what I would have been, some sort of a comedy uh, songwriter or something. But that didn't happen. He got a job at F.C. Nash Department Store in Pasadena as a stock clerk. Yet this mundane position was not without dark significance. Through a co-worker, Manir got his brother a gun. The gun. He asked me if I could get a gun. Uh, Sirhan, uh, because he used to belong to the ROTC when he was at Muir, I said, sure, I'll ask. So I, at work, I asked a fellow employee, and he said, yeah, I, you know, I have a friend that has the one that he wants to sell. According to LAPD interview transcripts from 1968, Manir tried to talk his brother out of buying the 22, finally demanding that he swear on their dead sister's memory that he would, quote, go to the rifle range one time and then throw it away. Sirhan did swear, but, as Manir told the cops, he didn't carry it through. So one night in January, Manir's work buddy drove over to the house in a Corvair, pulled up, and honked. He had an Ivor Johnson 8-shooter in a box. Sirhan came out on the porch, and they made the deal. I had no idea that this, you know, would have this kind of an outcome. No idea at all. You know, you, you kind of st- start looking inward to see if you were part of the... Uh, the blame for for this thing happening. On the morning of June 6th, Manir went to work at Nash's. He stepped into the employee's lounge before clocking in. For him, at this point, it was still just another Thursday. The TV was on loud. The the room was full. Usually it's not that full unless it's somebody's birthday. And I'm thinking it's too early to celebrate a birthday this early. And uh, I went and walked over and put in coins in the coffee machine. I took a couple of sips of my coffee, looked at the screen. There is not yet an official identification of the suspect, but you see him there. It looked like Sirhan. I said, whoa. The picture came on again. I said, that's my brother. So within a matter of seconds, Manir's day goes from another eight hours in housewares to the shock that his brother is being held for shooting Robert F. Kennedy. What went through his mind? I thought when this thing happened, that they got the wrong guy. Manir borrowed his boss's car, picked up his brother Adele from home, and they headed for the Pasadena police station. The officer didn't seem too, too interested. So uh, we walked away. And uh, when we walked away, Adele happened to gaze at a, a newsstand. 
And uh, there it was, in his picture on the front page. So he grabbed the paper and went back to the desk sergeant. Told him, listen, this is my brother. I remember the guy's look. <laughs> he said, oh. And then, uh, then all hell broke loose. <laughs> what can I tell you? Police Chief Redden said the Saran family has been most cooperative in the investigation. Well, we know very little bit. He's been non-communicative. And he hasn't uh, been very helpful. Uh, you know, he hasn't told the family about what he's been up to at all. So we don't know anything more than you do. That's from a 1968 televised press conference in front of the family house. When, when things somewhat, somewhat cooled down, after, the, after we spoke with the FBI, after we spoke with the police, the L.A. police and Pasadena police, and uh, Mother and I went down to see him. Did he say anything to you like, about... I did this or didn't do no, this? Oh no, 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 no. Well, ma, mother, no, no. Mother asked him, uh, you know, what happened. What? Uh, and uh, he, he said, I don't remember. I don't know. All I know is my leg hurts and my. Uh, I think it was one of his thumbs that were hurting. But uh, he didn't. Rem- he he specifically said, I don't remember what happened. This lack of memory of the actual shooting of Kennedy is something that Sirhan has continued to maintain. Though in a 1989 TV interview with David Frost. He said his motivation to target Kennedy was the senator's support of Israel. I mean, why Robert Kennedy? Because to me, he was my hero. He was my champion. He was the protector and the defender of the downtrodden and the disadvantaged. And I felt that I was one. And to have him say that he was going to send 50 phantom jets to Israel to deliver nothing but death and destruction on my countrymen, that seemed as though it were a betrayal. Manir says his brother never shared those feelings with him. I mean, did he have animosity towards the Kennedys or ever oh, talk no. about that? No, or? no. Not, none of us were politically inclined. And then there's the Manchurian candidate theory. Sirhan was acting under hypnosis and was a patsy assassin meant to draw attention from the actual killer. This could explain his calm demeanor that witnesses remarked upon immediately after the shooting, and the notebook police later found in his bedroom with RFK must die, scrawled repeatedly, something hypnotism advocates say was automatic writing done during a trance state. I know this sounds like a cliche, but he had uh, played around with hypnotism and that somewhere along the line he he learned how to self-hypnotize himself or, or somebody got into his head. Hypnosis and brainwashing and mind control aside, forensic evidence states that the shot that killed Kennedy came from no more than three inches from the back of his head, where an armed private security guard had drawn his weapon. Eyewitnesses place Sirhan as never closer than a few feet away and approaching Kennedy from the front. An audio tape recorded that night surfaced in 2004. Experts say it reveals up to 13 shots fired. Sirhan's gun held eight. This knowledge and its implications, the second gunman theory, are what Manir clings to. I wasn't there, but the people that were, you know, they all say that they heard more shots. Sirhan wasn't close enough. There was a lot, a lot of controversy. These are eyewitnesses. It was not us making, you know, the family making these things up. When we heard those things, we, you know, gave us a little bit of hope that maybe, you know, Sirhan didn't do it. Like we thought all along. It, was, uh, it wasn't Sirhan, you know, not... not not my brother. 
At moments like this, sitting in a still and quiet dining room as his cigarette burns slowly in the ashtray, you can feel the helpless frustration that's weighed upon Manir for decades over a situation he didn't ask for, but one he has accepted as best he can. Eileen Sloman, her husband Peter and son Ernie have lived next door to Manir for almost 30 years. To her, he's just Manny. I love Manny. He's just, he's a really nice guy. He's a great neighbor. You know, when we're gone, he watches the house, and when he's gone, we'll watch the house. And just a few years ago, he gave me his phone number. After the assassination, Munir says his neighbors were very supportive, and even in public, his last name has never brought him trouble. In fact, uh, I didn't like it, but a lot of people would say, you're famous. Or, uh, they would uh, go out of their way to help because of the nor- notoriety, and then I tell them, please, you know, I have my own individuality. That's been going on for years and years. But his individuality is a buried and private thing. Hang around with him for a while, and he seems like a regular guy. But a regular guy is a very hard thing to be when your brother was convicted of killing a Kennedy. Sirhan is currently residing in his fifth California prison since 1968, the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. Driving is hard for Manir these days, given his failing vision, so it's mostly phone calls and letters between him and Sirhan, and even those are random. When they do come, he's still talking to his big brother, the guy that used to look out for him so many years ago. Stop smoking. It's bad for you. I hope the neighbors are okay with you and, you know, taking care of each other, looking out for each other, which we are. We all, we, we all go out of our way looking out for each other. And so Manir marks time in the house, alone. Ask him what his days are like, and he shrugs. He talks to the lawyers when they need something, and he spends his dwindling eyesight reading and rereading boxes of briefs and transcripts, still trying to make sense of everything that's consumed him for 50 years. He seems to take it all in stride, but every now and again, just for a moment, something else comes to the surface. I'm lost. Did he do it? Didn't he do it? People were there that say this, and people were there that say that. You know, I wasn't there. I, I have to rely on uh, my brother. And uh, he, he, doesn't, he says, I don't remember. It's been generations since that night in 1968. Who was Sirhan? Who was Robert Kennedy, even? What is unforgettable to older Americans has become vague or simply unknown to younger people. Sirhan Bishara Sirhan, California State Prisoner B21014, will have his next parole hearing in 2021. His brother will be waiting. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Pasadena. On this week's show, we've been going back in time to the late 1960s. If you're going to San Francisco. That song, San Francisco, by Scott McKenzie, helped draw people to the Bay Area some 50 years ago. Young people across the nation looked west to California's counterculture. The Grateful Dead, the Merry Pranksters, the Black Panthers, Gay Liberation, the Summer of Love. And that got us thinking about a letter Amber Evans of Berkeley shared with us for a series we're calling 
Letters to My California Dreamer. Dear Mom, thank you. You left your abusive mother in New York City to start a life in San Francisco, lured by stories of the summer of love. Meeting my father on arrival, he was drawn from L.A. by the same freedom found in San Francisco's late 60s hippie culture. Your dream was to find love, make love, and with me, your only daughter, you say you learned what love was for the first time. You raised me as a single mom, and as a social worker, you made roots in San Francisco, pioneering a single parents network in the Family Service Agency. You facilitated a gathering of single parents to discuss the challenges of parenting alone. You made sure I was educated by California public schools. I went to a collaborative preschool with kids whose parents were in the San Francisco Mime Troupe and the Radical Sibonese Liberation Army, embedding me in San Francisco history forever. From public schools in San Francisco, I graduated to UC Santa Cruz to find my own love, a second-generation Californian himself. Now, my only son is graduating from Berkeley High, this week to head to my alma mater, UCSE. My house, bought as I started grad school at UC Berkeley, is paid off, and unlike so many in the Bay Area, we feel secure. But much of my extended family has moved out of California, citing the crippling cost of housing. Also, Mom, you are now showing signs of dementia, and there is nothing more dream-crushing than facing the loss of memory. Your husband of 35 years watches the retirement he dreamed of with you slip away as we face great financial risk. Living only in the liberal enclaves of San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and Berkeley, the Golden California Dream, once attained by you, passed through me to my son for him to now flourish. While I settle into my middle life, juggling his next steps with yours, as you pass into your fog, the dream now muted, all my love, Amber. Amber Evans' letter to her mom. We'd love to hear your letter to one of your family's California dreamers. Maybe it was a parent, a sibling, a great-great-grandparent. Maybe you were even the first in your family to come to California with a dream. We've got a really easy form on our website, so take a few minutes to tell us your story, and we might ask you to record it to air on our show. Check it out, californiareport.org. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes That's Otis Redding's classic, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. It was released in January 1968, a month after he died. The song was inspired by his time on a rented houseboat in Sausalito. Our next story is about something that happened just across that San Francisco Bay back in 1968. Not a protest or a love-in, but the closing of a factory. The Technical Porcelain and Chinaware Company, or TEPCO, was the biggest employer in the city of El Cerrito. It made dishes you'd probably recognize from a diner, ceramic, thick, and glossy. They seem pretty ordinary, but since the factory closed, they've actually become really meaningful to a small band of collectors all over California. Ariel Plotnik takes us to meet some of them. I'm sitting outside at a cafe in El Cerrito with Sandy Genzer-Mack. She's telling me about the moment she and her husband 
found what they'd been looking for for years. We went to this antique store and way down low in a cabinet where you could hardly see were two doggy diner mugs. We were quivering. We were so excited. These aren't just any mugs. They're Tepco mugs. And at one time, they were in restaurants all over the Bay Area. Sandy and her husband, Lynn, have an outdoor shed filled with Tepco dishes. They had a newsletter called the Tepco Tribune, and they started a fan club. And when we created the Tepco Collectors Club, I was the main dish. I'm Lynn Mack, and uh, as part of the uh, Tepco Club, I was the side dish. Sandy and Lynn, the main dish and the side dish. We flipped through a binder full of images from the original Tepco catalog. Every plate ever made in every pattern. Bamboo leaves, wagon wheels, flowers, and pagodas. The plates also have wild names. Concord, Flame, Melody, Mohawk, Monarch, Pixie, Reef. And the dishes are beautiful in a kind of ugly way. I don't know, it's got dings and, and scratches and knots and... Uh, the, the, the quality is very bad, and the, I don't know, it's, we love it. The factory was founded in 1930 by Italian immigrant John Pagliero. He started out making porcelain kitchen appliances, toilets, and sinks, and then realized he could do a lot more business by selling everyday items, like plates and cups. The factory produced tens of thousands of pieces of pottery every day, all handmade. Tepco was El Cerrito's biggest employer. Oval platters and bowls were thrown on eccentric jiggers. A relative of John Pagliaro made a documentary of found footage from the Tepco factory. Workers mix and pour porcelain into dish molds. Decorators tossed the china into a tub of water, and when the tissue soaked free, it left the design clearly registered. Then the ware was ready for the glaze dipper. Back then, Tepco dishes were everywhere. They were at country clubs and even the Kaiser shipyards. The U.S. Army and Navy used full sets of Tepco in their mess halls and on their ships. El Cerrito mothers, the story goes, used to tell their kids to bike down to the Tepco factory to pick up an extra table setting. The factory was going strong until one day in 1968 when it was destroyed by a kiln fire. Now, all that's left of the factory is a place affectionately known as Tepco Beach. The factory used to drive their broken plates right here to Point Isabel in nearby Richmond. Multicolored Tepco shards are piled in a thick layer on top of the sand, mixed with dried seaweed. Walk on the beach and you hear the crunch of porcelain underneath your feet. Crouch down and you can find special treasures, pattern pieces, and handles broken off from teacups. Remember Lynn Mack, the self-proclaimed side dish of the Collectors Club? It's just Lynn and me at the beach today. His wife Sandy recently, unexpectedly, passed away. Without her, he says, Tepco isn't that fun anymore. You know, I look at some of the collection and I, it's lost its, some of its luster. You know, because it's something we did together, and now I can't even look at some of it. People with a passion for Tepco are getting harder and harder to find. It's even more difficult to find people who remember life at the factory. I was going to interview a man named Frank Storno, the last living Tepco factory worker. But the day before our scheduled interview, he died. He was 101. 
With Sandy and Frank gone, Lynn's big TEPCO collection really feels like the last monument to the factory. What are we going to do with all this stuff? (laughs) I have no idea. I know that these things are important to me. They're probably not going to be important to somebody else when I'm gone. But it's important to me. I've started collecting TEPCO now. You can find the dishes pretty easily at flea markets all around California. But it's more fun to see them in use, in the wild. Every so often, I sit down to eat at a diner and think I see a TEPCO plate. I flip it over to check if it has the green TEPCO stamp on the back. It rarely does. But I'll keep flipping dishes over, because one day I might find a TEPCO plate or a mug. For the California Report, I'm Ariel Plotnick in El Cerrito. We're going to go out with one last hit from 1968. This one topped the charts that summer. Hugh Masekela's Grazing in the Grass. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho, and our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering this week from Howard Gelman. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. I'm Sasha Coca. Have a great weekend. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Carnegie Mellon University's part-time Master of Science in Software Management. Students innovate software products while building their Silicon Valley network cmu.edu slash iii and Supermicro, a Silicon Valley IT solutions company with an emphasis on energy-efficient computing. Engineering and sales positions are available. Learn more at supermicro.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.